um, it's been my uh, feeling that, that just people are just proud of their generation, if their side of the family's been here, you know, uh, one no. generation long. Well, I don't I mean, feel it is, that way. Well, okay. I, like, well, you had said, it's I'm third generation. I'm, um, you know, my children are fourth generation, and then I began to count up. We had a little conversation then. Let me see if this is... Yeah. Um, all right, well, that, that anyway, that's, no, I thought that was pretty neat, because I, I thought John sort of referred back to it as, well, well she, she's third generation. So that uh, was, see, I, I sort of got that. And then you were very quiet, so you came across as... Um, oh, see, that might be a... An impression I don't want to get across, but being quiet. Well, you, you gave great confidence, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> Good bluffing. <laughs> um, whatever. Um, well, if you could tell me what was the what was the biggest cons the the most difficult thing that came out of of the internment camp experience for you as a bystander to this? Well, just as uh, a remark of history, you know, I'm saddened by that whole period and the personal losses that were had by most of the people I know myself. Mm -hmm. it, it's sad. It, it gives you a, a feeling of sadness and pride, and there's all kinds of feelings involved in it. Personally, um, it reflects on our family, I think, because of John's sense of loss of family at an early age. I'm sorry that he had to go through that, and he can't really uh, embellish, you know, family life as much as I think mm -hmm. he could have. Things happened on him. Do you think if he talked about it, it would be helpful to him? He's, he's talked about it. But see, the girls are grown now. So it's... No, I mean, just for him. I mean, I've, I've wondered... Um, I don't know if it's been chronicled how often, you know, children in those camps. Have you read books? A few. Mm -hmm. But you know, you know, he once said to me, why don't you write a book? And I said, what about? And he said, about us. And I don't know what he really meant. Um, but I was kind of wondering if he was referring to himself. Well, he was interested in, in um, one of the speakers at the convention was not a member of JCL, but he was uh, asked to analyze the Japanese American Citizens League structure from a business sense, just to see how we're faring on that level. And it was a refreshing outlook because it wasn't within the organization. We didn't have all the history or the, you know, all that information to bear on his observation. And it was a very um, 
analytical study of the organization and our failings and our strong points and what we should do if we want to grow. And he, he likes things like that from an outside perspective, so maybe that's what he was referring to, mm -hmm. see what your perspective is of the Japanese Americans after your interviews. Because there's so much inwardly he, he knows from other people within the group, but mm -hmm. he always likes to hear outside viewpoints. I haven't met enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I've only interviewed four. You thought make five, and that's not... Yeah, I think people have to be a little bit more revealing before you can, you know, get a, a feeling. Um, Nikki, what do you think your children will say when they've grown up, when they're asked how it affected them? Hmm, I'd be interested in hearing that answer yourself. I think one of the things they might say is that their father has somewhat of a negative attitude on certain things. Could, could you embellish that a little bit? Well, whenever um, a new situation arises, I think, he tends to point out what could go wrong or why it wouldn't work. Some, most times. He, he says I do that a lot, but I, I think the girls and I would say that he does that quite a bit too. That uh, it's not one that real positive reinforcement, like, yeah, go for it, try it, do it. Not that kind. He, he analyzes it from the viewpoint of what could go wrong and why maybe you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a hang-up from his camp experience. Me, they'll probably say I'm I don't speak up enough, and I don't follow through with you know, convictions mm -hmm. that they think I might have. I think that's one of the qualities they might remember from me. But later in my life, I've been trying to be a little bit more assertive and outspoken, and try to read up a little bit more so I can be more confident talking about certain mm -hmm. things. And I think they may maybe call that about me too, but I just didn't sit on a log and just go, let life go by and mm -hmm. try to grow grow a little bit. And I think John's been very instrumental in that too, because he's been very encouraging for me to go to school and get a degree, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I give him a lot of credit for helping me in that episode too. Now, did you go on? You went? I went to junior college and got mm -hmm. a, um, an associate degree in dental lab technology in his field, mm -hmm. thinking that that might be a career I would go into. But after I finished the two-year course and I did a little lab work in his office, I, I found out this is not what I really want to do the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I like to be with people more and not just working in a little lab, yeah. producing mm -hmm. partials and things. So that was a little sit back with him because he had my whole career outlined in my office mm -hmm. and he was just snowballing with this whole thing and I said, you know, just stop. You know. Well, that, you're sort of there. You didn't yeah. go on I to think say, well, all right, I'll do that. In a way, yeah. he created a monster. <laughs> 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 so um, I took an assertive training class and he always calls it my aggressive training class. I only use it on him. But I think it has helped me with dealings with other people in situations. 
So bit by bit, I'm trying to grow. To grow. Well, do you, your you said you depended on your father. I think your father probably turned around and had to depend on you a lot, too, in those days, don't you think? Or do you think? No, I, I was just a little twerp of a kid. I don't think he had to depend on me to do anything. Well, you said that you learned to cook. A little keep bit. The house. A little bit. But, I mean, if I did or didn't do it, it, didn't it wasn't going to change a lot. So, um, no, we just, do just got by. Well, you're a lovely woman, Nikki, so you did more than, you know, y'all did more than get by. You survived and you did it with the dignity and you, but see, now you're, I think, bleeding. Yeah, because you're um, coming out looking like, you know, uh, Sister Teresa here, but I just, to me, it was just a average normal childhood, and we just happened to have certain experiences in our life that other families didn't have, but that doesn't make me any greater person, any braver person, more insightful, anything like that. I don't give myself that much credit. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand by my guns a little bit. Uh, that was pretty assertive of you. <laughs> but I will, I will stand by my guns because after learning, and this is fresh for me, all this knowledge of what people, this group of people went through. Um, so I would say, and then to have your mother ill, I, I think that that is at that particular age. And I think you are a lovely woman, and I think that you all are survivors. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to take back anything that I said. And I think you have done it with dignity. I, I'm not taking back anything. <laughs> um, I didn't say you saved anybody. I said you saved yourselves. And um, what you're thinking inside your head, I, I don't know. But I, uh, I see that you're not able to take compliments. I believe that, yeah, true. Well, when it's deserved. I well, I think it's, I think it's deserved for, for the people that I've met, and I and I'm not trying to. Uh, I give more credit to the Nisei and the Nisei. I do too. Yeah, I if you want to, if you, but I'm not into comparing people, Nikki. I never have been. Um, I'm not into comparing the term Holocaust and can that go to this one or that mm -hmm. one. Uh, I'm not into comparing pain and. Um, who suffered the most, uh, in which cultural group or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, pain is pain, and, and suffering is suffering, and surviving is in, divided into many different ways. So, yes, I would say when I learned about Issei's uh, waiting 50 or 60 years to become citizens of a country, um, crime rate is low. I mean, you're, there's there's a lot of, I, I don't think I need to take back anything. <laughs> well, maybe personally, I think maybe I might need a little more, a few years more perspective to judge 
I feel that way about the people, the other group of people that, um, I mean, I think, I think they're on, there's, my, my feelings about them are, you know, there was no welfare then when they came here after the war. Um, talking about the Holocaust survivors, they did what they had to do and they went on with their lives and learned a new language and, mm -hmm. and I give them tremendous credit. So, um, you yeah, know, that's the way I feel. Um, but your course, you did real well in your course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people who, who try and do better and to learn, and I'm, I'm into learning. Um, hi, I'm, is there anything else you want to add to what we've talked about that you think would would benefit people or let them know how things were? Anything I've not touched on? I think one of the things John always points out in his talks is that more appreciation for America, being American, for him, that's very important. You know, people know that about him. This generation, more than a lot of others, had to really go out and earn it, or else everybody else takes it for granted. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a legacy, I think, if the kids can appreciate that if we can pass that along to some people, that's, that's a lesson we'll learn. Yeah, tell, tell me about the museum in uh, was it Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and it's called the Japanese Japanese American Museum, okay. in Los Angeles, and they're in a building phase right now. But they're also collecting oral histories. They had surveys they sent out about what songs you remember in camp, what games you played, and so they're trying to evoke all these memories to put in the archives because mm -hmm. these are some of the, the little details of camp experience have been sort of overlooked and uh, they're trying to get a, a complete picture of camp, as complete a picture as they can. So they have um, artifacts, that, a lot of crafts that they worked on in camps mm -hmm. that they made from pieces of wood and just whatever they would find around whatever camp they were in and some really wonderful crafts have come out of that uh, display. So I think that they're approaching it on a, a good level. Mm -hmm. That sounds, now have they sent John something? Have you seen it? Well, at the convention we were just in, they had a, an exhibit out there, and they had these uh, flyers on the table to pick mm -hmm. up, and one of them was one of those questionnaires. Did he take one? I picked it up, but uh, he hasn't filled it out. I don't think he's, he's looked at it yet. Mm -hmm. Does he keep in contact with any people that he knew out there? In camp? Mm-hmm. Well, just a few months ago, he got a letter from a teacher he had in camp. Mm -hmm. And it just surprised him that she was still living, for one, and that you know, she remembered him. And he's, it's funny, his reaction, he hasn't sat down to write her a letter. Again, I don't know why he's hesitant. But, uh, I am surprised, uh, because she's got to be... Oh, 
she must be 86. Yeah. Or maybe eight, something like that. But uh, death is, the uh, letter's just sitting on his desk, and he just hasn't gotten around to replying. She's very old, and I think she just was reminiscing in this letter about what mm -hmm. she remembers from the camp. And so I, maybe he's at a loss for what to say to her. I don't, I don't know, but he hasn't replied yet. I'm married, and just to tell about him. No, mm -hmm. you know how, how we are. We don't like to toot our home or anything. But Where does that come from? Just, I mean, your dad talked about it. I think it's in the genes itself. <laughs> it's just something, they don't tell you this when you're growing up, it's just something that you just are reserved about. Well, if somebody said, I mean, do you ever remember, you know, do not, don't, being told not to brag? I think maybe once or twice they might have said that, but, um, or you heard it from some other family that, you know, it's not good to Mm -hmm. brag about yourself, but it wasn't something that they just drummed into us every day. I think part of it was just the way our heritage is, you know, one of those unknown quantities you do inherit when you, and to this day, it's, it's my daughters are the exact same way, they don't like to boast, you know, my daughter's in medical school and she does exceptionally well in certain categories, but she doesn't like to boast to her friends or even to us, you know, sometimes we just discover accidentally that she got some kind of recognition for something. And she doesn't make a big deal about it. You know. It's sort of a cute, charming quality, but then on the other hand, you miss out on a lot of things because they don't talk up themselves. And my other mm -hmm. da older daughter is the same one. She got some recognition from college for outstanding teacher in class. And she doesn't like to make a big deal about it. Did she tell you? Because she got a letter and a plaque in the mail, so that's sort of hard to hide. But she didn't mention it to us in the beginning. It's only when it came in the mail. Is your father close to the girls? No. That, that's the one thing. They didn't have that traditional grandfather, granddaughter thing. He, he's not observant of their birthdays. You know, again, I think it's that carryover traditions all the time. I have to remind him, if I want to remind him if we're going to do something, that the girl's birthday's coming up, and then he'll, he usually just gives him money. He doesn't mm -hmm. buy him a gift or anything. And uh, so they, I think they grew up with that sort of lack of family bonding, because you know, they see their American, uh, Caucasian friends and the grandparents make such a big deal about everything. Mm -hmm. They don't have that with the grandfather. Now, did John completely lose, he, well, he has a brother that he sees or something, but he has several, several brothers. But he, how does he react when his parents die? Are they still? No, uh, his father died a long time ago uh, before we were married. And his mother died maybe seven, eight years ago. Was there much reaction from uh, Some of the other brothers went over to the service. John didn't go. Oh, she's... She was in Japan. Oh, she went back to Japan. After the war. So we had gone to visit her once when the girls were young. Mm -hmm. We all got to visit her for about a week. And that was the only time we ever saw her. And she was living with his nephew and niece, and his sister 
lived close by, his older sister. And he and his older sister weren't close at all. So it was, uh, he mainly went over there to see his mother. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't speak the language, so I couldn't talk to anybody, but the girls, being kids, they got along well with the young kids, and you know, it was a nice experience. Um, I got to see her. But, uh, when she passed away, um, he didn't go over for the service, mm -hmm. but he had a strange premonition. Ghosts and spirits are um, a big thing in Japanese folklore, and over in Japan, the sister had a sort of a shrine to her husband. Mm -hmm. It's a bowl of rice you're supposed to put there for every meal, candle and incense and different things. And as a tradition she upholds. And when John's mother passed away, he had a dream about her coming to visit him. And I think that was just before she died. Mm -hmm. And it was just real spooky. Yeah. Um, but he's had dreams like that before people passed away. I said, so don't dream about me. Yeah, did he, does he, did he ever have dreams about camp life? Do you know? He doesn't, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Something will trigger a memory and he'll, he'll relay it, but I don't think he, he has nightmares or dreams about Most of his recurrences are funny ones. I don't know if that's something in the quirk of your mind that you erase some of that more. Yeah. Negative ones, but he remembers a lot of the funny experiences mm -hmm. he can. He sometimes seems to, he likes, it seems as though he likes to have a good time um, or make a joke mm -hmm. um, when he's, you know, the few times that I have seen him uh, interacting with people. It's I like think that's a sort of a defense mechanism he has, too. He just, if you get too close or something, he'll pull a joke out. This one. Well, personal feelings are still very hard for him to talk about. Even to me, you know, if I wanted to really be, you know, want to bear it about it and dwell about the psychological things, you know, he has to be in the right kind of mood to mm -hmm. talk about things. Maybe he just won't talk about it. Talk you know, because I was thinking that um, maybe he would like to do a tape on what it was like to be in camp as a child. Just, you know, what it's like. He's already it. done it. He did do that? He has a series of about eight tapes that he's done of his recollections of growing up. A lot of it is in camp mm -hmm. up to when we were married. That's when he stopped. He says his memories erased from that point. Well, then maybe he would just give them to us. I don't know. That's something very personal. And he did that more for us. Mm -hmm. None mm -hmm. of us have listened to it yet. I don't know what that says about us. But he left that more or less for the family. Well, I think that's fantastic that yeah. you did that. Yeah. So he's been encouraging me to try and do that also. Ricky, why haven't you listened to it? 
I guess I'm around him so much, and I hear all some of these stories that I've heard it all before. So I to sit down and listen to the whole tape. I just haven't been. Oh well, then he does talk to you all about it. When it, when the occasion arises, he'll talk mm -hmm. about it. Okay, thanks.
six-year license for the uh, exclusive right to trade along the Valley of Missouri, French authority in New Orleans and Minnesota. France exhausted by war. Louis XV was two billion to 2.3 billion leaves uh, with debt. They abandoned North America by the Treaty of Paris. Ceding Britain to burial claims east of Mississippi after secretly surrendering Louisiana to Spain. As an interim commissioner appointed to succeed Louisiana's last French governor, Louis Bouillard in Iraq, the captain of the French Navy. Dominic was to preside over the transfer of authority in Spain. Iraq may have made the original grant from Rosanna in uh, 1762. Uh, before returning to France. Not sure about that. They came to do anything else. War depleted French resources and stalled the Indian trade, which required the regular availability of merchandise and presents. Commercial exchange and outright subsidy were not only the medium of Indian influence, but European trade with us become vital to the survival of Indian communities, economically and for the defense of those hostile tribes. Drawing to the periphery of an expanding global network of European trade and warfare, during the previous hundred years, the Indians of the continental interior had come to offer a ready market for and regularly demand not only whiskey and guns, but lead and powder, steel for striking fire, gun flutes, gun screws, knives, hatchets, kettles, beads, shirts, blue and red cloth, and colors for special people. For blankets, blue and green ribbon, needles, thread, awls, hat covers, frame mirrors, paints. Greatly desired were pennants and gold and silver medals displayed the signs of the ancients of the bar. In exchange came a degree of military loyalty and physical security of Europeans, and the hides and furs of deer, bear, raccoon, otter, fox, and wolves. The war's end had not only brought a virtual halt to the regular trade, intertribal raiding continued in the old white country. In the coming of the hated English, the troops would be followed by land speculators and settlers, driving Indians off the lands. It created a climate of racial violence. In December 1764, ten months after Marxan's company of merchants had settled in Charles Philippe Aubry, then acting commandant of New Orleans, wrote Pittman to discourage him from the Senate move. The news we had received from Illinois is by no means favorable. The savages are always extremely animated. The embarrassment of the commandant of Illinois is extreme. He is tormented by all the nations and has nothing to do with it. The inhabitants are very miserable, red men kill their cattle and pillage them, and they dare not say anything. It is time this should finish. I hope that the revolution of the Spaniards may produce a favorable change. Aubrey would be disappointed by the Spaniards. The enterprise of Pecor, which was a conservative response to this crisis of the revolution of the Spaniards, he said nothing about Pittman, perhaps for reasons of diplomacy. The little company of merchants there also represented a response to the Spanish Revolution that fit well within the context of militarized trade. Instead of private relationships between commandant and trader evolving over time, however, the St. Louis venture accompanied the transfer. 